Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My my guest on today's podcast is my friend, Dr. Scott Baldwin. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Thank you. Um, Even though he's a doctor, and I'll probably refer to him as a doctor at times, I'm mostly going to call him Scott um, because he's younger than me. Most of the doctors in my life now are younger than me. It's Mm -hmm. kind of a, it's a change for me. So anyway... (laughs) He is going to talk about being an early release missionary, and this occurred in 1997, and I'm just so glad that he's willing to share his story um, for a couple of reasons. One is, if you're an early release missionary, wondering how your life is going to work out and if you'll ever get married and have a family and have a career, I think Scott will give you hope that all those things are possible for you, Um, because this happened 25 years ago for Scott, and he's married. Um, has five kids. He's a BYU professor. He's a um, clinical psychologist um, and also practicing psychologist. Is that right? That's right. Yep. And he's got his obviously a PhD and a master's. Did an did an undergraduate degree at BYU. So he's kind of come full circle back to BYU, and he's been there about sixteen years, and is doing wonderful work. I may have already mentioned this, but they've got two. Um, his wife Autumn. They have twin sons, identical twin sons that are serving missions right now in Ghana, Africa, and South Africa. So two sons on that continent helping people come unto Christ through a restored church. Is that okay for an introduction? That sounds great. You did a good job. Um, just a comment. I wish I had some of the um, clinical um, and professional expertise that Scott has. I've been drawn to people with his expertise and learning more. I think it's just, the, it doesn't say everybody needs to do this, but the ability to bear, mourn, and comfort because of the clinical expertise and the education expertise that Scott has is really needed in our community. And those of you that are on this road, you will bless a lot of lives because of the skills you're learning and then your ability to help other people through your clinical work. And Scott is doing that. And oh, I did want to embarrass Scott. He won't like this, but I found uh, somebody that said something really nice about him on the internet. Dr. Baldwin is hands down one of the best professors at BYU. (laughs) He is always willing to answer questions and explain things in a different way if they seem confusing. I was dreading this class because I'm not a fan of statistics, but seriously became one of my favorite classes because he was such a caring professor. Take Psych 308 from Dr. Baldwin. So there you go. I embarrassed you. Um, So anyway, I think Scott is going to talk about his own experience and then talk about, you know, so if you're early release missionary, this will help you, but it'll also help people around early release missionaries, parents, friends, local leaders, just have better tools to support this group of wonderful Latter-day Saints. So with that, I'll turn it to Scott. Awesome. Thank you. Something you said just about wishing you had a little bit more training or something like that just reminds me of something a friend of mine says in fact he's been on your podcast before it's scott braithwaite but he likes to say um when he's talking to our trainees at uh at byu who are training to be clinical psychologists that that doing therapy is really good for the soul (laughs) and what he means by that is that it's pretty hard to dislike your clients as you get to know them because things that are make them really prickly and difficult sometimes you kind of learn that it's really because they're in a lot of pain. And I think once you kind of appreciate the pain they're in, that it starts to open up some 
some things to it. And I actually think that's pretty related to what we want to talk about today anyway. So love that. So I think it even you you may not feel like you have the skills, but I think you've you've one of the nice things you do is you open yourself up to lots of people's experience and which involves a lot of pain. And so I think it's good for the soul. So it is. And thank you. You bet. Um so I think my goal today is just really talk about mental health generally and and specifically as it pertains to serving missions and um, as I tell my story, like I'll give the punchline. I made it about eight days in the MTC before I came home and I'll, I'll get into that in more detail in a so second. So I hope everybody heard that eight days. Yeah, eight days. Not seven, not nine. You still remember <laughs> eight days, yep. how many days it was. And this is mid 1990s. Yep. It was a painful experience for sure. Um, but I want to start by just talking for a second, um, about why I think talking about mental health and frankly, things that are just kind of difficult is so challenging for us, especially as it pertains to missions and then um, just with respect to life generally. I think, uh, so thinking about missions specifically, I think one of the reasons is that humans and perhaps members of the church aren't unique in this way, um, really like to know whether something's a person's fault, right? Like, so if someone's struggling on a mission, I think we start to, we want to know are they responsible or not? Is it something that they need to change in order to make this better? And so it can be everything from like, has there been some kind of transgression that makes them uncomfortable trying to serve in this way? Are they here for the wrong reasons? Is the amount of anxiety they're feeling like clinical, you know, is it something that's worth uh, addressing or is this just kind of homesickness, right? That's uh, that they just need to toughen up and, and get through this difficult time and then they'll be okay, you know, and, and drawing those lines is not very easy most of the time for anybody. And, you know, I live and breathe this stuff and it's, you know, there's not a blood test for this, so it's pretty hard to, to deal with. And so I think thinking about who's, who's at fault and that why we, when we have that question in our mind, that can often be a time to pause and just wonder, is that really what, is that the question we need to be asking right now? when it comes, when you're sort of like confronted with somebody that's, that's having some trouble. That's really thoughtful. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think a second reason that this is pretty hard is the idea that everyone has an experience with anxiety and depression and difficulty, ADHD style symptoms and that sort of thing. Now it may not be a clinical experience for you to the point where impairing your functioning, whether that's on a mission or somewhere else. Um, but it is something that everybody's been worried about something and afraid for example. And, um, so I, I think that that is, can be different from other sorts of experiences that we have as people where, um, you know, if somebody's had a particular illness, cancer or something like that, not everybody's had that experience directly and knows kind of how they have dealt with it. I think why that matters is that as, uh, say you get worried about something, if anxiety is not really a problem for you, you may worry about it, you deal with it in the way you deal with it, maybe get a good night's sleep and you just wake up feeling better the next morning. And so that starts to be the kind of advice you give people, right? Like just do what I do. And, and I think that can quickly lead to the idea of, well, the way you get over this is to live the life, the life I've lived, right? In various ways. And then it leads to a sense of, um, judgment sometimes, 
Um, and it can be a little bit harder to be empathic. And I think, you know, anybody who's a parent listening knows how that goes, right? Like it's just sort of a child makes a decision that's different from what you would want or what you did. And it starts to feel like, and, but then has trouble after, right? Start to think, well, it's because you made the wrong decision, you know, and that sort of thing. And so, um, I think that's another issue. And then I'd say the third one is, um, just the way we talk about feelings in in our church and theology and things like that. And it's a real common idea to say things like being faithful leads to peace. And uh, it's not that I doubt that. I really do believe that. But I don't necessarily equate peace with inner peace. And that suffering can often be be a faithful experience in the process. Um, and then you get promises quite regularly. I got these prior to my mission on my, you know, during those periods that are, you know, with the right desires, the Lord can help you overcome anything. And that won't always be the case, right? At least when it comes to, it's not that I, I I don't know. It's not that I doubt the Lord's ability, but I also, I know from my experience that didn't happen. And, um, and so I think it can uh, because if you connect that to the first idea of whose fault it is, I think when that peace doesn't come and you're still waking up scared every day, then you start to think, well, I'm not faithful enough, right? I'm not good enough to be able to do this. I wasn't honest enough on my mission papers, all those sorts of things, right? And if I had been, I wouldn't be in this situation. So I think it's a, I just wanted to bring those up just sort of as to like a, a beginning point um, because these aren't easy. I'm, you, nobody's going to walk away from this thinking like, oh, I know exactly what to do and how to fix all this and make everything okay. Um, but I think if we consider why these things are so difficult, then we can slow down a bit and take our time to kind of figure out what's next to do. Does that make sense? It does. It's a great segment. Awesome. So keep sharing your story. You bet. So um, I thought at this point I'd just kind of mention or talk about my story a bit. Um, I my parents told me, um, like since I was a little kid that I was an anxious kid that, um, kind of came, came to the world that way. Uh, and it would look like everything from, I was the child that it was difficult to get to go to nursery and at church, you know, and it just, I didn't want to go and I complained about it. Um, I'd kind of grown out of that kind of thing initially by the time I went to school. Like I had, I don't remember having too much trouble like going to elementary school or if I got a new teacher or something like that. I did okay with that. But where it got really hard was with anytime I was away from home. So I struggled with things like sleepovers at friends' house. And the way I experienced was uh, as soon as it started to get dark, my I'd just feel a pit in my stomach. And it's so funny. I, to this day, still have that experience most of the time if I'm away from home. Um, where it starts to get dark, it's after dinner and I start to, it's so ingrained in me. I start to get a little bit anxious. And, um, so I don't love like, even like I say to this day, traveling by myself that much. I can, but I don't love it. Um, the other things that I worried about as a kid was things like, uh, you know, I had standard worries about social stuff and dating and things like that. But I, things that kept me up at night were really like performance oriented stuff. And that really revolved around grades. And, you know, I, I would worry about whether I was uh, going to get good enough grades or if something went badly, what that would, how that would affect my future. And 
think one of the most telling things, especially in hindsight, I don't know that I appreciated this at the time, but in hindsight, I really realized that a lot of my, um, like I'd have success, I'd get an A in a class and I almost never felt happy about that. It just felt relieved, right? It was just a sense of relief that I hadn't failed, that I had, or what I considered failure, right? I hadn't failed. I hadn't come up short in some way. And I think that's also really telling and, and, um, gives a sense of sort of the grip anxiety had on had had on me has on me you know to some extent still today and so um i graduated from high school i grew up in bountiful utah i graduated from high school and then came to uh provo to go to byu as a 18 year old and um at that point was fully intending to go on a mission um i had a brother out on a mission at the time i was pretty excited about it um felt like I could do good, but I was pretty nervous about it too, all, all throughout teenage life, just sort of worrying about whether it was going to be like, am I going to be able to do this essentially? And, um, so the end of my freshman year comes papers are in and, and, you know, back then everybody went when they were 19. Right. And so everybody's getting their mission calls kind of all at once. And it was, it was really fun. Like we were having a great time. My two best friends at BYU, um, we're all more or less the exact same age in terms of we're a month apart. And so our availability date was about the same time. And so, uh, by July of 1997, we were all going to be gone. And, uh, pretty excited about that. So I got my call and I was headed to the Netherlands, um, Amsterdam mission, um, which at the time included Netherlands and part of, uh, Belgium, Flemish Belgium. And I was really excited about that. Um, I'd had an uncle serve in the Netherlands and, and he and I spent some time together before I left, just kind of sharing, he was sharing what it was like and, um, got my little flag. I was excited about it. Um, but I was nervous, you know, and I expressed that multiple times. I mean, I, I struggled at scout camp, you know, like it was, this was non-trivial, but I had gone to BYU and I'd lived away for a year and, and I had my ups and downs like most people. And maybe it was a little more downs than some, but I felt pretty successful. I felt like I was honest on my papers and all that sort of stuff as to how it was going. And anyway, uh, so I had prepped some going into it as well, a little bit of therapy, um, lots of planning on how to deal with stress and things like that as it came up. So with a lot of nerves, you know, started at the MTC and um, it anxiety set in pretty much immediately. Um, certainly by the first, the, like the second morning. So you get dropped off on that first day. I, at some level, I think everybody was so overwhelmed. I was just exhausted by the end of the day. It was probably the best night's sleep I had for the <laughs> few days I was there. And then it just set, set in. And I, um, I don't quite know how to describe it other than just it's a, a sense of dread and a sense of, uh, like, I can't do this. Something's wrong. Um, and so I tried to throw myself into things I knew how to do. And so like learning language like that, that itself didn't, you know, it was challenging, but it, it didn't stress me out. Cause I was pretty good at like book stuff, you know, like I could, I could memorize and practice and do those things. And so I was having some reasonable success there, but when it came time to um, kind of do anything else, I just couldn't keep my mind on stuff. And I was always worried about it. Within a few days, I started to have some panic attack style stuff where I'd had to excuse myself from the classroom and head down to the bathroom. And then I'm just crying and then it's embarrassing. And, and my companion was a great guy. 
Um, but I, you know, I don't know. As a 19 year old, I certainly didn't know how to open up to him. I didn't know how to get support from him. He maybe could have. I, I never asked, so I, I don't know how his thing would be. So after about three or four days, um, uh, I just decided we we'd had a few interviews with the branch president, and we I think we had just one more. Like just it was just sort of the orientation stuff and another chance. So. I was just like, I'm going to tell him, you know, this was one of my things on my list of like things to plan to do that I'm having a real hard time. And this is when I started to really feel like having talked to him was when I first started to really feel like, I don't know if I'm right for this. And so I told him I'm having a hard time concentrating. I'm not sleeping. I'd already lost some weight because I couldn't eat. I had no appetite. And, um, his first question was just to ask whether there was a transgression. I said, no. And I I don't know that I was particularly offended at the time. Like, I don't know. I was just kind of taking that kind of thing in stride. I think I became more bothered by that (laughs) later on. Um, But at the time I was just sort of like, no, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm worthy. I'm here. Um, I don't have anything to say. And, uh, and then the second question he said is that, or the second statement he said is then I think, it's just homesickness and you just need to loosen the apron strings and toughen up some. And, uh, so I walked out of there just feeling completely like uh, that didn't help. And I kind of actually feel worse now. Um, because you know, uh, humans compare to one another and you watch the other people around you, you know, and I'm not saying none of them were struggling or none of them were themselves homesick or anxious or anything like that, but they seemed to be laughing and I found it hard to laugh. They were eating no problem. I found it hard to eat. And so I just was kind of feeling like, I guess I'm just not tough enough for this. So after a few more, um, so that probably would have been on like the Friday or Saturday of that first week. And then, uh, the by Sunday afternoon, I I've had probably what was what I would consider kind of the worst bout of like panicky feelings um, during a big. I don't know what it was because it's been so long. I I just remember being in one of the big halls in MTC, feeling like this world was spinning, and so I just told my companion, "I got to go. I'm going to go find the MTC president." Um. So I went to the president's office and he happened to be available or like, I think I had to wait a few minutes, but he was, he was around and could talk to me. So we talked for a few, a bit and, um, kind of talked through what some of those things were going to be like, what we might do. And his suggestion was, why don't you go home for a period of time? So we're not going to, I'm not going to recommend you get released. Why don't you go home for a period of time, get some medication, some therapy, like, you know, whatever, that's what we ended up doing whatever you might do. Um, and then we can reevaluate in three weeks or four weeks and we'll see if we can, we can make it work. So I went home and, um, and my parents agreed that that would be fine. And we talked to my uncle who had served in the Netherlands so he could tutor me in Dutch during that time. And so I memorized and did my thing. I went got some med- got on medication, did some therapy. Um, and after three weeks I wanted to give it another shot. And, um, they were even going to put me back or they did put me back in with the district um, because I had been studying Dutch at home and I, pa- I don't know, they gave me a little like oral test. Kind you of thing. pioneered home MTC. There you go. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't remember what day of the week I got back, but uh, I, I did my thing, went to, to an afternoon of classes with my district 
And then, like I said, it was sort of like that nighttime, dinner time. That's when the anxiety really started to set in. And I just felt that sense of dread. And uh, I just really kind of came unglued and didn't quite know what to do. Um, and so I went back and they'd given me at that time, you got this like little free phone call card. I don't know what to call it, but it was like a little thing that said you could go use one of like the eight pay phones that were up in the front. And so I called my mom and dad and just said, it's happening again. I don't know what to do. And at the time, a guy in my parents' home ward was the mission president in Toronto, one of the Toronto missions. And we had considered a reassignment there. Like that was part of what the mission department considered when I was away, you know, when I was home from the MTC. And so they reached out to the state president and did their thing. And um, by the next morning, they had just said, okay, we're going to reassign you. You'll stay one more week. There's a district that has one more week left before they head to Toronto. You can just join them. It's English speaking and you'll go. And that sounded fine. But by midday, it just was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, and uh, I decided at that point to call my parents and just say, I, I, I can't. Like, And you get the thoughts that I think a lot of missionaries that are really struggling for whatever the reasons are of, I wish I was sick. I wish I had a reason that somebody could just say, you just need to go home. Um, and that's kind of how I was feeling. And so I kind of, because I'd been home for a bit, we, we had talked about that, my parents and I, and that was kind of our cue to be, that's time to pull the plug. If you're, if you're so focused on just, you don't want to be the one to make the decision, then that's probably time to, to make it go. And uh, so I came home and it was really, really tough. It was really, really tough. Um, and, uh, you know, cause I'd seen one of my very best friends in the MTC, you know, and so I'm there one day and not the next. Um, my, my other best friend was now at, had just arrived at the MTC and, they were very supportive. Like I felt nothing but support from them, but I, it just, I knew I was going to be alone. You know, like everybody that I knew at BYU was gone. Um, girls at that time is still the 21 age limit. And so, you know, like I would just say most of that was just awkward, both for my part and their part. They just weren't that interested in talking. And I don't know that I was that interested in talking either. Just kind of, I just felt embarrassed. Um, and so we eventually decided, uh, for me, I decided to come, uh, so I was living in Bountiful, decided to go ahead and, um, move to visit with my, or live with my uncle and aunt, um, the one that was tutoring me in Dutch, um, in Salt Lake. And the reason I was doing that wasn't so much that I felt like home was a problem or even my home ward was a problem. It was just more like, I just felt like I needed a fresh start, just something different where I could, uh, you know, start in a new ward. I went to work for him. He was a pharmacist and, um, I could do that. And while I kind of get my footing, figure out what, what's next for me. Um, at that point I, I had, I, I'm sure somebody, or I remember people saying, you know, maybe you can wait another year or two years and then go then. I think at that point I just said, this is done. Like I, I did what I needed to do Good. and I'm done. That said, um, I think I had a lot of doubts. I really had a lot of doubts about whether God loved me. Um, why, if there's this priesthood duty, 
would somebody who was worthy and willing, would he not provide the support? Why were some of the people that I interacted with not particularly helpful? Some of them downright mean in the process. And so I kind of had my own little, I don't know, you could call it like faith crisis, I suppose, but some of it was crisis with respect to God. And some of it was crisis with respect to the organized church and leaders and things like that and how to make sense of all that. Um, and what the, what the year that I spent living with, or about a year living with my uncle, working with my uncle before I went back, back to BYU was just a, an opportunity to let some of that unfold. Um, one of the best decisions I made was to not make an immediate decision. Um, I, I admit that for the first 48 hours, I just wanted to be in a hole and not come out. I just, just out of sheer humiliation, probably more than anything. Um, but you know, I think if I'd rushed into something, I think that would have been a problem. And, it, and certainly if I'd withdrawn so much, that I think would have been a huge problem. And so I think that proved to be a really good thing. And uh, that year was a lot of growth, a lot of pain, um, and a lot of difficulty, mostly because I, I had no friends to speak of at that point. Um, I mean, I think if I'd stayed in Bountiful and really tried to, to reach out to people I knew in high school, but most of them would have been girls, which I had plenty of friends that were, were girls, but you know, I don't know, they come moving on. Some of them were getting married already, you know, like there's some of that kind of stuff and it just, it didn't feel normal to me. Um, so I didn't really do that. And so that, that was difficult, but then I eventually, uh, went back to BYU and started to settle into just getting my degree and moving on. And within um, a few months actually of being back is when I met my wife, Autumn. Um, and, uh, you know, a few months after that, we started dating and then another year or so we got, we got married. Um, and then, you know, the, the part of the story, I would say, like, I'll condense that between that period and today that as of 2022, I must never think about the fact that I didn't serve a mission. Like it's come up a lot since my boys left on it. Like I think about it more now, but I, I, it's just not something that's on my mind very often, but that definitely wasn't the case early on when, you know, like when we were first married and we were in a BYU married student ward back then, maybe they still do it in some areas, but you'd go to any kind of priesthood meeting, like one of the Sunday morning ones or something like that. And they'd always have a returned missionary choir. And there I was, you know, I mean, some people would call me a return missionary, but I, I, I don't know. I, I never felt like I did. It was eight days. It didn't, I didn't feel like I counted. And, and I certainly didn't want to get up and have anybody ask me where I served, you know, like that sort of thing. So I'd, I'd be the one guy sitting in the, in the back that really hadn't served, especially at BYU ward, right. Where so many people had served, you know, so it would bring attention to that. And then when you're in your early twenties in a densely LDS population and it's just a big part of what people ask you about you know and i went from just saying well i went but came home for health problems to trying to avoid the question to i mean now i just say i didn't i didn't serve a mission i usually don't even explain i just kind of say i didn't do it 
um, unless it's the right context. And then I'll tell a story similar to what I've been saying here. Um, but it took me, I don't know, probably at least till I was in my mid thirties to be able to just flat out say it didn't happen. And that, that's a, that's a long process. And that's the patience part that I think is whenever expectations are violated, right? Like whatever your expectation is, I think our, our tendency is to move quickly and try and because the emotions are strong, we want to solve the problems that those emotions seem to be indicating. Um, but often I think it's a benefit to just wait and see and, and be patient in that process. Anyhow. So, um, Scott, on behalf of our listeners, just thanks for taking us back to 1997, I think is the right year. Yep. And, and putting words to what you felt way back then and the reality of the road you were walking and just not having the tools to understand, but having enough tools to know this isn't where you needed to be. Right. And, um, listeners, I often will write down little phrases as, as guests and maybe you do the same thing, but, um, and some of these, I think part of this podcast and we know better, we do better. So I don't think Scott or I are trying to call anybody out, but it's just like, well, if I'd heard it that way, I might not have said that. And, you know, loosen the apron strings. Yeah. It's a very shaming statement mm-hmm. to somebody who's vulnerably opened up to somebody in trust. Yeah. Um, and maybe for some, uh, 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 just a kind not thought about homesickness is helpful without a shaming comment. There's no, that to me is just a pure shaming comment, mm-hmm. even if you're just working through homesickness. Mm-hmm. And so I could certainly have made that comment, but I just, that was kind of jarring for me. Yeah. Um, when you're in a real vulnerable, and I think the first person you sort of opened up to an authority. Um, I love what the mission, the MTC president sort of lets, you know, have you go home for a period of time, see if we can work through this. I love people even considering assigning you to a different mission, but mm-hmm. I love you just being self-aware enough saying this isn't working. Right. Um, you said another really wonderful two-word phrase, um, let unfold. Not sure I've heard that phrase, but the context I think was I'm not going to go fast here. I'm sort of in a new reality. Mm-hmm. Back to use my expectations are violated was the other phrase I wrote down. So I think that was really good advice to all of us is when we're in a new reality that we didn't anticipate that's jarring or very un- unplanned is to not rush things and just right. kind of let things unfold. And I thought that was a really thoughtful thing you did with this period of time with your uncle. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's one of the tricks of, um, emotions. Emotions tend to make us feel like everything's urgent, especially the more pain we're in. And there's just a lot of value to, it's not that I'm expecting myself or anybody else to be like emotionless, like a Vulcan or something from Star Trek, but just to be cognizant of this is what I'm feeling, but what I'm feeling doesn't necessarily have to dictate everything that I do. Because if you're in a lot of pain, it feels like I got to escape, right? I got to absolutely, like there's certainly were times where I thought I absolutely have to leave the church. Like I cannot do this. And, uh, why didn't you leave? So I think it is really boils down to 
it was people who love me, probably. Um, let me just, if you don't mind, I'll read something I wrote once. Um, loved, love to have you read something. So when, when I was on the car ride home from the MTC, I was in the back of a, just like a sedan just, and I just kind of laid down in the back and it was at night and my parents lived right next to the church. So, um, and they had notified the Bishop, his name's Bishop Williams that I was, you know, I mean, he was in the loop on the whole thing all, all along, but then they notify him, they're going to get me and he's going to come home and sweet guy. He was new when I about when I get back. And so he's hanging out in his office just kind of watching out the window to see when the car would pull up. And uh, so it's easiest for me just to read, read what I wrote. So my parents' home was right next to our ward building. My parents had let Bishop Williams know that I was coming home and it was going to be good, um, going to be for good this time. Bishop Williams waited at the church building. And when he saw that we were pulling in, he came to our house. I didn't want to see him. I was teary, embarrassed, and angry, and had just decided I wouldn't be returning to church anytime soon, yet there he was. Bishop Williams didn't say much to me. He poked his head in the back door and said, Scott, you didn't do anything wrong, and I love you. And then I, the Savior reached me at that point through Bishop Williams, even though I hadn't been able to feel the Savior's care for me. I couldn't feel the Spirit when anxious, but I could feel the physical embrace of another. That made the difference. So that's what I kind of think, like, I think it was the, one of the things that torments me, I think with my own mental health problems is that it, uh, I do not experience the promises that everything from the scriptures to the prophets promise us or modern prophet in the sense of this is how it will make you feel. This is the things that you tune into. Um, but it's people who love me, but I can feel people and I can, you know, let physical contact. And so I kind of like to think of my own ministering angels as the people in my life, the people who took the time to be supportive, whether that's a bishop, my parents were wonderful and all this, the uncle, the, an aunt, um, and my cousins that I lived with. Um, and then, uh, my wife, you know, I mean, that's been hugely, um, I remember the, we were walking, we'd just sort of gotten to know each other and we were walking off a of campus. And You've got to have this conversation with Autumn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And we were uh, walking. She's going to marry a return missionary, I assume. Yeah. That's part of her plan. That's a big part of coming like, up to young women's is I'm going to Especially marry. in that era, right? Yeah. So I'm. So we had this conversation coming. We were walking down from BYU and we just, I don't even know if we'd been on a date. Maybe we'd been out once. Um, but we were uh, kind of like establishing how old we were, you know? And, and I think I said at that time, you know, I was born in 1978. You could see, you know, people are doing the math and it means I'm 19 and, or 20, excuse me, at the time. And so I just said, are you going to ask? Because, <laughs> you know, I knew where this was going. And she said, why didn't you serve a mission? And I think I was, I don't remember, Autumn's sitting here, so maybe she remembers, but I don't remember if I said why I didn't serve a mission. Do you remember? Let's, let's set, let's get Autumn. Yeah, good. Well, I'll just correct one little thing in the story. He said, are you going to ask? And I knew what he meant. Um, 
because I had grown up and gone to Young Women's and we'd made lists of what we wanted in a husband and return missionary was always at the top of the list and, you know, one of those non-negotiable. And so when he said, are you going to ask? I said, no, you can tell me what you want to tell me. Um, And I actually consider that one of the greatest blessings of my life because the word, no, I don't need to ask that question came out of my mouth. And I didn't feel like, obviously, as we got closer, I wanted to know his story and I wanted to know more about him. But it was very early on in our relationship. And I think Heavenly Father blessed me to know that whether he was a return missionary or not did not need to be at the top of my list. And that that was something we could, that would not be an impediment to our life together, our faithful, faith-filled life together. I'm going to keep Autumn on the spot. We'll see if you like this question or not. Um, That was a great answer. That was a terrific, um, just a way to handle that conversation. That was a really spirit-led, thoughtful, mature. What about Scott, as you feel, has made him a better husband and father because not serving a mission and, and this difficult experience in his life that I would guess has brought him some skills and gifts that have blessed your family? That's a leading question. Absolutely. Um, could, could give you a very long answer. Um, I felt early on, I think one of the things that I was first really interested in Scott because of is how thoughtful he is, both in terms of that he thinks about others and also in terms he really thinks about things and he considers things. Um, and he's been... I think it was an to have this experience was kind of an early pain in the life of someone growing up as a member of this church. And it was an early bumping into uh, the idea that things don't always work out the way we think they're going to, because we've been promised that if we obey the commandments, things are going to work out. And he bumped up against that early on. And together, we've had other experiences where we've bumped up against the fact that, um, you know, we are certainly not guaranteed to be free from difficulty and suffering because we are being righteous. In fact, uh, the difficulty and the suffering are perhaps the most important part of being here. Anyway, but I think having that experience as a 19-year-old just opened him up to um, being willing to hear other people and hear their stories, um, both as he's a therapist by profession, but also just in everyone we interact with, he's, he's willing to hear people's experiences and believe their experiences, even when the experiences don't fit the ideas that we have of how life should work. Um, he's open to the ambiguity of that. And um, I think that's often one of the best things we can offer someone who is in the midst of suffering is to hear them, to believe them, 
to not try to convince them that it would be okay if they just dot, 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 whatever it is we think would solve the problem. That's a great answer, Autumn. And I love that you recognize, I mean, I had a checklist at BYU and I wanted to marry a return missionary. Um, and then I dated, I just had more, enough experience to think the checklist is a bad idea because I thought it guaranteed be a pathway to the person that had the, the Christ-like attributes I was looking for. And the checklist isn't always linear to that. And I love your maturity to recognize, to get sort of past the checklist and get to Scott. And that this was a positive thing that would help you navigate future things in your marriage, that Scott had added, added skills and insights um, because of his own journey that was a good thing for your marriage and for your family. And you had enough maturity to see that. And that's a great story for listeners. I mean, it's just, this is a beautiful love story. Um, but it's a great message. And I love what you said earlier too, Scott, about I've learned I don't feel the spirit the way everybody else does. Yeah. And that in itself is a whole podcast because there's just some incredibly faithful Latter-day Saints for one reason or another don't feel the spirit like traditionally communicated in a testimony means so they don't feel then they'll self-internalize that and say, well, something's wrong with my spiritual journey. Yeah. But it's just the differences in all of us. Yeah. So thank you, Autumn. And thank you for, and I'll just let you continue to, Talk wherever you oh, want you to bet. go next. Well, I think, I mean, you're kind of getting at one of the other things I wanted to talk about today, which is just this question. I think one of the main things that was on my mind as um, I came home, but it is a life lifelong question in my head. And that's the question of, do I fit? And I think it's a, it's a probably a universal question for most people in any group uh, at different times. Um, but it's also a really common experience to question, do I fit and belong? Um, how do I fit within this church and those sorts of things? And Autumn shared with me, um, she had a professor at BYU. He's still there. His name's Lance Larson. He's an English professor and a poet. He was the uh, Utah State Poet Laureate for a while as well. And just a really um, interesting guy. And um, he has a poem called A Missionary Considers His Converts. And at the beginning of the poem, he tells about, um, he must be serving in, I think it's in South America somewhere. doesn't say, it doesn't really matter, I suppose. And he, he talks about the people he's teaching and what it's like and, um, and the experiences they have. And then I just kind of want to finish the, or read the last bit of the poem because um, it really gosh, it spoke to me at the time and continues to really kind of be, articulate my experience so well. So this is the poem, or the end. We help them believe in God, not images. Then we ask for their statues, their false books. Today, after just three visits, we walk away, heavy as pack horses, unloading everything in our backyard, along the fence, saints and angels, wooden Madonnas, a crucifix worn brown by kisses. Looking at the clutter, Elder Hansen started to laugh. Three months out, but already happy in, in this work. Teachable, never imagining a world without God. Why not burn it, he said. And I nodded, imagining statues smelting in smoke, the whole superstitious mess dumped into a shallow grave beneath our window. But tonight, 
Awake suddenly, my belief, a borrowed shirt too long in the sleeves. I felt like saving them. Above me, cold stars. While here along the fence, washed in moonlight, smile gods I can hold in my hand. And the line that especially sticks out to me is the notion of a borrowed shirt too long in the sleeves, that, that his faith at that moment, you know, a sense that it's, it's a shirt, he knows what it is, but it feels like it's somebody else's and it doesn't quite fit right. I think that's kind of how I felt. You know, even uh, today, it's a Sunday afternoon and we had kind of like a worldwide training or at least an area training on missionary work. And even just sort of, sort of listening to the conversations we were having at church, it, it still kind of feels that way at some level, especially when it comes to missionary work, I think, because it's so personal to me in that way. But, um, and I, I, I just suspect a lot of people who don't fit cultural scripts within our culture often feel like church works great when the shirt feels like it fits. But when it's something that feels a little bit awkward for your own experience, whether that's someone like me that is pretty anxious and, and struggles to, to maybe feel the spirit the way others do, or if it's a single person, a divorced person, a queer person, those sorts of things, right? Like to the extent that kind of feels like a borrowed shirt in his sleeves. And I, I think that's kind of, you know, like, I think I've ended up with a lot more empathy toward myself and grace towards myself as well as to others. Because sort of like I led with, like when people are in pain, they, they're trying to work that out. And sometimes the gods you can hold in your hand feel a little bit more real to you than, than these other ones. And, and I suspect part of the reason that it, it, the, the other sort of more traditional way of thinking about faith in our church, perhaps some of the reasons it works for those other people is because their shirt fits really well they match it just like you're quote unquote supposed to. And, um, and I wonder, I wonder if there's ways in which we can be better about that, both as the person who's maybe feeling like their shirt isn't fitting quite right, as well as those just wanting them to get it tailored, you know, and just become exactly like they are kind of thing in the process. So I love that. I'll be thinking about that for, I just love the visual imagery of the shirt. Yeah. Yeah. And the desire we have sometimes to tailor other people's shirts to fit in. And yeah, my older self would say these different types of shirts are needed to create Zion. Zion isn't sameness. Zion is what you're describing and creating a feeling of belonging for each of us where we are. Right. And that's a good thing. It doesn't take progression off the table. It takes, but it takes, Puts community and Zion sort of on the table. I love that. Yeah. Um, so I thought the other things I wanted to talk about was just sort of, you know, it, it feels a little bit like even just saying it out loud, it feels a little presumptuous that anybody would care. But I was just going to say anyway, what I would say to youth and parents of youth that are planning to serve missions, what would I say to anybody who's come home? in a way that they weren't planning on. Now, what would I say to leaders, you know, like sort of in sort of those areas? I'm glad you're doing this. (laughs) So in fact, on the drive up here, I said to Autumn, like, what, what do you think I ought to emphasize? And, you know, her thing was especially just lean into the hope. And I think that that's kind of what I want to say to the youth and parents um, is to lean into hope. And, 
and the idea that things are going to get better. Um, and what I mean by that is it, it, uh, we don't have to, that's the patience part that emotional pain may be there. It may come and go throughout your life. And by that, I just mean come and go even during weeks, not necessarily it's going to be there for one year and then gone for five. Like it, that's at least my experience is not that way. Um, but, but by and large, you can have hope that things are going to get better. And I think the path that that requires is going to, that's as diverse as the people that are experiencing it. Um, but th things can get better. So I, I think that, and I've seen people do that by staying in the church. I've seen people do it by not staying in the church. And, and I think I've gotten more comfortable with the idea that that can happen and not be threatened by it. Um, and I certainly, you know, for my own children, I kind of hope that they'd stay because it's really important to me and I think it's beneficial to them. But I uh, also understand that people with great integrity can make other choices than I do. Okay. Uh, the other thing I'd say, or a second thing I'd say is things are already getting better. So when I compare, I, like you mentioned, I have two sons that just left on mission and, uh, one of the benefits of having twins leave um, within six weeks of each other is you, you, everything's kind of fresh in your mind. You see how one went through it and it's still really fresh in your mind how, as the other one starts going through it. And I'm just really, really impressed with the concern and care that their various leaders and people that they've associated with have given them. That can be everything from my son that went to South Africa because of some visa problems, he didn't do the MTC in South Africa like he was planning. He ended up going to the Provo MTC. And at the Provo MTC, gosh, they just do, they do a lot of like pre, before you come, you get a virtual tour. They help you understand what it's going to be like. They have, for heaven's sakes, they have like a cookie and milk night, you know, just to kind of make it a lot warmer than it used to be, like a warmer emotional experience. Um to uh when one of my uh, the my other son that went to ghana went to the mtc in ghana so we said goodbye at the security gate the salt lake airport and and then just waited to hear from him and um you know he woke up and you know literally on the other side of the world and uh is a bit panicking and really wanted to be able to talk to us before p day approached his mission president and he literally handed him his iphone and just said go ahead and call Cool. When I, like at the Pro MTC in 1997, there was like this layer of bureaucracy to get any access to the phones and they were all up by the front desk. And if you lingered there too long, somebody came out and told you to go away and stuff. You know, it was just very gatekeeping at that time. And it, it just seems like it's gotten less that way. And, and I think that's wonderful. Like, I'm so happy about that. And, and like I say, the, the mission presidents in both places have just been, been wonderful. And I think they're, they're concerned and, and less, less of a, loosen the apron strings type attitude than, than there was. So I think that's great. I'd say to parents, youth, and their local leaders, because I think the local leaders play a big role in the preparation part, and that's to help the kids work from where they are, not where you think they should be. Um, and that is so wow. profoundly important because um, the, wow. the idea of like, you know, we've, we've, had a, a family friend who's uh had some depression um and a bishop told 
this person to not take too much medication or you won't be able to serve. You know, it's sort of like a backwards idea to my mind because that's sort of putting the, hey, the cart before the horse and it's kind of like we got our eye on the wrong ball in that case. We got to get this kid, like this person to a place where they're feeling better. And, um, and then maybe a mission happens, maybe it doesn't, but that's not the messaging I think you want to do. And I think that's sort of like expecting this person to be at a place that they weren't, right? Um, and you know, I think a lot of, you know, you, there, there's segments of people who are really bothered by the fact that missionaries call home once a week. Cause it's like, it's just evidence that they're soft and that sort of thing. And you know, just let them be who they are. I mean, whether, I don't know whether they're soft, but you know, any missionary, anybody who's alive right now, um, who served a mission, didn't leave for three years and never talked to their family the whole time they were gone. You know, I mean, you just have to hear the stories in the Doctrine and Covenants of Brigham Young's missions and what that meant for his wife and all that sort of stuff. Like, does that mean they were soft compared to Brigham Young? You know, we just don't talk about it that way. And every generation adapts to what their reality is. And we need to adapt too in that process. Um, and learning to talk about your problems in a productive way. It's not necessarily weakness, you know, like, um, and typically isn't weakness. I wouldn't even say not necessarily. It just typically isn't any sign of weakness. And we just need to be able to do that. And I think that we get scared as a church and as a people um, when we, if we acknowledge the limitations that we're going to give people reasons not to engage the gospel that they'll take advantage of it kind of thing and so you'll often see when people talk about mental health that there's typically like a qualification like yes everybody should serve a mission but there's going to be a few that don't like so don't get confused kind of thing and it's kind of like well i i understand but you're all when you always qualify that that just again kind of makes the individual feel less than and not as important as or tough or anything like that um so i think that that's pretty pretty challenging the other thing I'd say is um, learn to ask for what you need and how to actively cope. One of the biggest challenges I, I think we have with uh, anytime I'm working with anybody in therapy is that uh, do a lot of what I would call passive coping. And that's usually they're types of avoidance. So I get stressed. So I don't go out tonight, right? Like I don't, I don't leave. I stay in bed longer. I don't get the sleep I need, all those sorts of things. Or, you know, I work around a lot of students. So that often looks just like straight up procrastination, right? Like it's just sort of this path. I get stressed. So I just kind of avoid it, pretend it's not there in the hopes that something will get resolved. And we all do this. Everybody has passive coping things, but I think being a little bit more active about how you cope and uh, directly address um, some of the challenges you have is, is important. And so I, it, just to give people some like concrete things, um, I would say uh, actively coping means not only reacting to difficulties when they come up, but it also means doing things that help you build strength and achieve equilibrium. Um, and this can be getting better sleeping habits, getting a job or some other challenge that pushes you. And that could be part of a team or a group, that sort of thing. Getting exercise, getting medication, seeking therapy. There's lots of things you could do, but making that an active coping thing, I think is a useful thing to do. So I'll transition to the idea of what do, what do I say to someone who's come home? Um, 
that coming home doesn't have to be the end of your ch- your relationship with the church formally and definitely not with your relationship with your heavenly parents and Jesus. I think that um, I felt that way. Like one of the biggest questions I had when I came home was just simply why did, why did God and Jesus let me down? You know, do they not love me like they do other people? And it took me a while to figure out that that's not the case. Um, and to see the love in other ways than reduction of my anxiety. Um, but have hope, be patient. If you're the parent or a loved one of those folks, have hope, be patient. It doesn't have to get fixed tomorrow kind of thing. Um, get moving. Um, so we recently heard a story of somebody who'd come home and, uh, I, I think depression was the main story, but I don't totally remember. It was mental health reasons in any case. And uh, this elder just didn't want to, didn't want anybody to know. Definitely didn't want to talk to anybody. Just kind of hit out. And it's like the opposite of what you should do for mental health. Withdrawing and avoidance are just going to kill you. And um, it just feeds, feeds on itself when that happens. So get moving. And again, you can be patient, but uh, don't hide. I think getting a job, enrolling in school, getting involved in a ward, it could look like anything. I mean, it really could, but just get moving. Don't withdraw. Um, and I, I think for me, like my own story, moving to be with my aunt and uncle was a key part of that because I, I worked for him. Uh, all my cousins were a little bit younger than me, but not that far. And so there were lots of people to be around. They had lots of friends. And so got to hang out with them some, and it just ended up being really good. Cause it helped me not just be, cause if I'd stayed at my parents' house, both my parents worked, I would have been home alone all the time. And that just would be death. I think, I think really poor. Um, B. People say dumb things, plan on it. I really believe, I gen- and I'm not to make excuse for people who say dumb things at like an award, if, um, whatever the situation is. But I think the, almost no one intends it to be a dumb thing like to, or a hurtful thing. Um, I think most people just simply are in a situation they don't know what they're doing. And so when that comes up, I think it's fine to feel hurt. I think it's fine to be disappointed in what other people might say or have done. Um, but don't let that pain be the decision maker for what you do going forward. Like if it leads to withdrawal, you're probably like, it's, we talk in therapy, it comes from a, a, therapist idea her name's marshall linehan she talks about the idea of as a therapist you want to validate what's valid but not the invalid part of it so somebody who say suicidal the pain that they're feeling is the valid part trying to end your life or cutting or something like that that's not the valid part so we don't necessarily want to validate that that's the way to solve this problem and that's what i would say here like we can validate the pain we can validate that somebody was rude but withdrawing, being away from people, being angry, maybe not the best way to handle handle that. 
that's what I'd say. Cause I think that when I got myself in trouble, that's when it would get bad. Or if I think about, um, like I'm mostly, you know, as I thought about how to tell the story today, you know, there's some zingers in there. I could say of some things that some people did that were really, but for me, it's like, it's been 25 years and I know that it actually harms me more when I focus on it. Not because I think what they did was fine. It's just, I'm gotten to the point where I choose not to give them the attention that it needs anymore. That's terrific. Does that make sense? It does. It's really terrific. So it's that kind of thing. And that, and again, I preach patience, hope, forgiveness all along the way. Cause it's it, both with yourself and others. It's just going to take that time. Okay. And then what would I say to leaders? Um, first of all, I would say thank you. And this sort of in relationship to what I said about my boys, like things are, it's a night and day experience compared to mine. Some of that is my own, like it's the lens I saw it through, but, uh, there's just so much more flexibility than there used to be. And, and there's some of that's the benefit of technology makes some things easier to be flexible about, but I think we've also become a little bit less um, precious about things that we don't need to be precious about. Um, and something like calling home would be an example of that. Um, I think that people are saying we're, we'll do what we need to do, you know? And, and I think that that's really great. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for that. That makes me, made me so happy. Cause I was really nervous when my son in Ghana was starting to get a little upset that I was like, Oh no, not again, you know, kind of thing. But it, it, it just was a different approach. I'd want to say, um, to leaders, I want like people to understand that anxiety and depression or fill in other emotional experiences there are normal life experiences. So when you have somebody who is anxious and depressed, um, it, I think it's going to be most helpful to normalize it within the context of the situation they are in. Um, and, and, and give them, help them with practical tools um, and steps to help so that they can, they can face it as they go along. Um, when we resort to, and I know this still happens, um, just knowing enough specific experiences, but when we identify the anxiety as depression as from the adversary, like that this is Satan trying to, to make it so you don't stay on your mission, it creates a level of confusion, guilt. I know you've had people, I've listened to some of the podcasts about scrupulosity. I mean, it's just like, fertile. you might as well throw fertilizer on that in that <laughs> instance, right? And, um, and it's just downright hurtful because, gosh, you, you know, you put anybody in a brand new situation, it's just, it's just terrifying, you know? It's, it's really hard and people will adapt at different, uh, at different speeds, but giving them a chance to just be like, this is normal. And back to that patience idea, let's give it a little bit of time before we decide that this is anything but just normal. You know, I think that that can be useful. Um, and that includes like, I think the emphasis, I, like, I, I want to be crystal clear. I do not, like, I'm not trying to say missionaries should be disobedient in some way, but our, our emphasis and sometimes just, uh, overzealousness about being exactly obedient 
um, again, facilitates this idea that when you're disobedient, you feel bad. Okay, I feel bad, so it must have meant I'm disobedient, right? Like, just gets in this cycle. So even if it doesn't rise to the level of scrupulosity where you you you're tormented, I think it rises to the level often of back to that sense of do I fit, right? Am I the right person for this? Am I here for the right reasons? Um, it's common, I think, for people to. Uh, you know, when I hear mission presidents talk, either active or former mission presidents talk about certain missionaries as being a burden, those sorts of things, people start to worry about that. That was a message I received on occasion and things like that. And so it's a, if you start to think, okay, I'm feeling bad, I must be a burden or I might be a burden for this person, then it starts to really, you know what I mean? Like it really becomes a, just a, a tussle within yourself and, and certainly not, it's, not the best uh, context to improve your mental health in the process. Okay, this next one um, is something that like is near and dear to me, and um, I appreciate the emphasis that has come about in the last five to eight years about different kinds of service that you can do, versus, and specifically with respect to a proselyting versus a service missionary or mission, excuse me. And, but when I hear those words, I come, there's a, a concept in, in, in science referred to as things are necessary, but not sufficient and necessary conditions are things that happen that are important for certain other things to happen. Right. So you have to have certain conditions to have certain chemical reaction, but that those conditions in and of themselves are not sufficient to create the chemical reaction or something like that. And that, that's what I mean here is that I think making, making the statement that a service missionary is equal to, in God's eyes, as a proselyting missionary is a necessary thing for us to communicate, but it is not sufficient as a way of helping people who do not serve proselyting mission. So even before I go on, I want to be crystal clear on this too. I am so impressed with and admire anybody who serves any kind of mission. Um, I don't know what I would have done if there were service missions at the time. Like, I don't know. I might have just said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm just going back to school. Maybe I would. Maybe I wouldn't have. Um, but I admire people who do, and I think, it, I think it's really wonderful. And I think most people do. Like, I don't, I don't think it's a huge judgment thing most of the time. But the words themselves, that they are equal, do not dictate um, – one's experience of not serving a proselyting mission. And the reason I think that's the case is because there's broader structures or institutionalized policies that um, make that difficult. And so an example of what I mean is we don't typically do like missionary firesides in stakes and maybe never do um, that talk about, you know, people come and they talk about serving in Ghana, you know, like my son or, and they bring, a table with things they collected on their missions and they tell the stories and they talk about the language they learned. We don't typically have firesides about the people who did service at the DI and those sorts of things. Right. Um, There isn't a choice, at least most times as as I understand it, between serving a proselyting and a service missionary mission. A service mission is if you aren't able to serve a proselyting mission. So it's still set up as the main thing. And, you know, so you'll be told, you know, be honest and, and then you might get assigned to the, 
service mission. But imagine a world that just to kind of articulate this point, imagine a world where you're given a full choice. So somebody who's the most mentally healthy person you imagine chooses a service mission. And then that's something you do. That'd be a different world than the one we live in, in this church. Right. And I, and I think if we, if we just say they're the same, that's where people get mad because it doesn't feel the same, right? The experience of going through the church, the experience of the lessons we had just today is proselyting mission. Like that tends to sharing the gospel in that way, right? That, that's leading to directly to conversions and things like that. And I'm not saying there isn't room for service missionaries to be, to be equal. But I'm just saying like the, the way it's institutionalized makes them unequal no matter what we say. Um, you know, and, and, and other ways that it shows up is like, you know, how many people in high church positions, general authorities, apostles, are serving serve service missions. You know, well, they're, they're new things, so it's not going to be very many. Or it, like maybe it couldn't even be any at this point. I don't know. I don't know when it started, but that'd be kind of the question I'd have like going forward is how does that, how does that work out? And do missionary focus lessons often talk about service missions as equal? And like by giving them equal airtime. And I actually think that, um, you know, the, the choice that when, when they change the process for applying and it, you know, and you apply for your mission and then you get assigned to either a service mission or a proselyting mission, you know, they talk about, you know, still have them speak and do those sorts of things. I think that's to get at this very issue, right? It's to try and make that, you know, that these are equal, if you will. And I just think we have a long way to go. Green. And the, the broader point here is that I think it's useful to think about it's you always, I think when we talk about mental health, we often unfortunately talk a lot like psychologists instead of sociologists and psychologists tend to localize the problem within the person. So it's the way they think, or it's their family history and those sorts of things that creates the problem. And so, you know, you take something like scrupulosity, you know, I've, I've seen some people um, talk about it as just simply a misunderstanding of doctrine, of the way things are taught. And that, what I would say is that localizes the problem directly within the person. But I would say, I think it's as, just as useful and, and actually quite critical to think about it as a broader system of problems where the person's in a broader system in which there is context in which the to take something like scrupulosity can bloom. And there's a reason why a lot of scrupulosity shows up on missions, right? And that has to do with the context in which it occurs. So it's not just a person problem, it's a system problem. And if we don't consider the system broadly, then I don't think we understand mental health uh, for missionaries or the church generally, but specifically since we're talking about missions well enough. Um, I don't know if I would have made it with any level of accommodation because I may have come in with just simply enough anxiety that it <laughs> just was not going to happen. I don't know. But I can also imagine a world where uh, there, were, there was phone calls and other sorts of things that potentially could have made it easier along the way. And so, but you're kind of bumping up into a system that's kind of rigid and not very flexible. 
um, around this kind of thing. And right now, at least the way the, the, the assignments go, I think the decision has been made. If we think you can't, you can't work in, within whatever flexibility we have, we're going to assign you to a service mission. So they sometimes make that decision sort of ahead of time. Um, and I just wonder if that's I wonder too what it needs to be. Yeah. Um, but you know, we'll see kind of how that goes over time. Last thing I'm going to say because this is I think just really relevant. It's been on my mind a ton since my boys left. That has to do with the idea of resilience. Um, and I came, uh, a, a student of mine shared um, this quote from Dr. Burden Stelly. And she's a professor of African-American studies at Wayne, Wayne, uh, Wayne State University. This is what she said. Resilience, excuse me. And before I say this, she's talking about, just to give you context, she's talking about this in the context of like, uh, some social justice issues and things like racism and um, poverty and things like that. But I think it's germane to, to missionary work. So she says, quote, resilience is a coping strategy, not a virtue. Celebrating resilience without interrogating the challenges, problems, and structural issues folks are routinely forced to confront runs the risk of idealizing the capacity to suffer. Wow. Close quote. And I think that that is um, really valuable um, because I take you take something like um, my son going to Ghana. So if if you're willing to just like uh, agree to serve a mission in West Africa, there's just a certain number of challenges that are kicked in, or built into that for uh, an American. Right? It's going to be brand new. Um, a kid from Spanish Fork, Utah, it, who's, you know, it's, you're going to be a different race than pretty much everybody. The level of poverty is going to be different. The food, language, being apart from your family, the comfort you're used to, all those sorts of things are just built into it. And there's almost nothing that can be done about that if you're going to go to Ghana. But are there other things that we expect missionaries to cope with that we don't need to make them cope with? To give you an example, when my other son, so Carter's the one in Ghana, when my other son, Thomas, started at the Provo MTC, Keelan Mills, who's the head of MTCs in the church, did a devotional or an orientation, and he said to the missionaries, um, you don't, you're, you, when you get to the mission field, your first job is not to teach. Your first job is to figure out where you're going to sleep, where you're going to eat, and where you're going to exercise. Those are like your three main things. But uh, what we found is that th this is just an example, and I'm not saying, again, this is universal, um, is it makes me wonder, what if on the first day of getting assigned to your training companion, they help you figure out where you're going to sleep, where you're going to eat, how you get your food, just kind of take you around the town, help you get oriented, make that fi stuff figure out. Because one of the things that was particularly troubling to my son in Ghana was just that I don't even know where anything is. I don't know how the markets work. I don't, I don't know, like, is the only place I can get chicken the place that has the bugs crawling on the chicken? Is there other chicken to have? You know, how am I going to do all this? To my mind, it's hard enough to adjust to Ghana without a lot of structure around. Why, why not give it a lot of structure to help sort of make it so 
here's the way you get your footing in each area. Have that be the companion who's been there's job to help you do that and spend 24 hours doing that. Uh, at the MTC in Provo, they did a wonderful job orienting them to it. What if we did that at every MTC so you know exactly what you're walking into, what it's going to be like? Those are simple things that we, I think we often demand resilience of, and that's probably because 90% of the kids do just fine. It may be stressful, but they do just fine. But are we losing some, right, in that process that would be wonderful servants? That, that's the kind of thing that I think is worth it. And one that was directly from my own experience was, so I was in there in, mid, in Provo in mid-July. It was hot like it's been. Um, I walked over to uh, that Sunday. I, I told you about the Sunday that I had. It just was like the worst day. And what one of the things that kind of got it started was heading to the branch meeting. And um, I, it was hot. And so I took my coat off. No one had told me you weren't supposed to take your coat off till your branch president told you. And apparently that rule still exists. But uh, until your branch president. And so I'm sitting there. Honestly, this kind of thing would never have occurred to me. And, and one of the members of the branch president got in my face and was just like, wow, that's inappropriate. You're always supposed to wait for your priest to leader. Okay, that's a trivial thing. Like it really is. Like in the sense that like, I'm not trying to say that that's what sent me home. But why do I have to even deal with that? <laughs> like this, it's kind of like a militaristic rule around. That's kind of what I mean. So what are the things that we can get flexibility? And I think calling home is an example of one where they were just sort of like doing it twice a year. Many people do just fine with that. But now that we can, why don't we just allow them to call each week? That's better for people at home. It's going to be good for the kids out there. All those sorts of things. That's something that was, I don't think was something that was required for the work to happen wherever they are. So that's kind of what I mean. Interrogating the things that don't need to be there so that we're not just throwing, out, throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. Because that's, I sometimes kind of feels like what it is. It's just that the, the best missionaries are the ones that are, can deal with the most stuff. And I think that's just the ones that survive, right? Like they're, they're the ones that get through it, not necessarily the best ones. So anyway, so those are some of my thoughts. Um, listeners, if you're like me, I'm learning things in this podcast, um, in real time. And maybe some of the things I'm learning are different than things that you're learning. Um, just some housekeeping things we're going to link. I'm going to put in the Twitter um, link as you provided of this resilience quote. So I'll put that in the show notes if anybody wants to read that word for word. Um, that really is fascinating. Resilience is is a coping strategy, not a virtue. Celebrating really resilience without interrogating the challenges and problems and structural issues. Um, and then you go on there. So to me, it's sort of like, it's a, I don't know if it's the same analogy as a platitude where you just be more resilient and it, pushes all the responsibility away from me. Think, what can I can do and improve the situation for somebody? Exactly. And so we teach about resilience and it's a good, it's a word I still like. Yeah, for sure. But I think what's my responsibility to improve the experience for somebody versus just inviting to be someone more resilient? Because I have no responsibility there. If I'm just inviting somebody more resilient or more faithful or more spiritual, I have less anxiety. The other thing, I wrote down this a couple times, work from where they are versus where you think they should be. Um, that's, a, that's a powerful principle. And then you went on to talk about medication as an example of that. 
let's get you off medication because this is where I want you to be versus the reality of where you are. Right. And that's a principle as I'm thinking as a parent, as a local leader, um, that's a really important principle is to meet people where they are and being, and sort of, even if it makes it more complex for your ability to help them, it's a better long-term strategy to help somebody. Right. (laughs) Um, even if you can't help them to get to clinical people or the professionals that can help them. Right. That was a terrific segment. I love your ideas about early release missionaries. And one of the things I'll link in the show notes is listeners, and I don't want to feel like I'm a book salesman, but we do have a chapter on chapter eight in, in this book, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture Around Variations in Missionary Service, and also chapter seven, Overcoming Scrupulosity. Um, so we touched on a couple of those, and I'll um, link to the book if you want to read more about that. We had a son that Bloom is the right word. I mean, he was just went to the MTC and we saw no cracks in the armor, no signs, mm-hmm. no anything. He'd even been to the country Samoa that he was called to. Um, but he gets to the MTC and everything just explodes around scrupulosity. We have no ability to understand what's going on here. Right. Makes it to Samoa. And finally, we get a diagnosis through just a professional person like you that I open up to that if within five minutes of explaining his symptoms, right? he says he has scrupulosity and I never heard that word. Maybe I'd heard it, but it was just, yeah. it was an answer to prayer and we got him the therapist that he needed and he was fine. Um, COVID brought him home Samoa and he married his high school girlfriend. Oh, right on. His autumn, <laughs> like 19, but that's a different story, <laughs> listeners. Um, but scrupulosity, I recognize where you're understand scrupulosity and how that could, you know, all the things that were going in your world, you recognize, it doesn't sound like scrupulosity was part of your journey at the MTC because you knew you're worthy. Yeah. You didn't go down this road that someone was scrupulosity. This is all because I've in night at age 12, this happened. I've confessed it 22 times, but. Yeah, no, none of that. Thankfully. That's, um, that's tough stuff too. I'd love you to talk, you know, when you, came home from the MTC, you told our listeners you were lying down in the back seat. I don't know if that was out of being tired or shame, Both. not wanting to see anybody. And and then the thing, a, a, a thought is Bishop Williams, you still remember his name. Yep. He didn't go, he just, sometimes going to the doctrine is helpful. He didn't go to the doctrine, he just went to love. Mm-hmm. And you felt the Savior's love through him even when it was hard to feel it yourself. And you still, and it was such a simple experience. It wasn't a long experience, but it seems like it was one of the most important experiences for you. But I'd love you to go back in the back seat. You're 25 years later and talk, you've done this already. But if you could sit with your 25-year-old younger self in the back seat driving home to Bountiful, what would you tell that that young man? I think that... that version of me like honestly couldn't hear anything. I think the, the, that's not the intensity of the, that's a shame was so strong. I I think what I would do frankly is not that different from what my parents did. And that was hold my hand and do everything they could within their power to make sure that, they that I knew I was loved, that 
to be flexible with me. And what I mean by that is I can, you know, I, I don't know. I've never asked my mom, but I, I don't know if she was like, yes, I think it's good for you to go live with your uncle. Or if she's kind of like, I kind of want you close because you're in pain. I know that's kind of probably how I would feel as a parent as like a little bit like, you know, wanting to rein them in, but getting, being flexible enough to see like that was maybe something I needed to try and willingness to let me do that. And so, and then I let Bishop was great. Our state president was great. I remember a conversation he had with me, um, when he, uh, released me the next day. So I came home, it was pretty late at night. And so we met with him, I think middle of the day, the next day. And, and he had in his office, he had a picture of the savior on one side and Joseph Smith on the other. And I just said, I'm so frustrated because I don't feel like I understood. And he just pointed to the two of them and, and just said, I think these are two of the people who would understand that more than anybody, um, what it means to not be understood. And that was all he said. I mean, he didn't give me a long doctrinal explanation and then gave me a hug and released me. And, and I just left feeling like, I guess like Autumn said, I, I don't know that I would have articulated it this way at the time, but certainly in hindsight, I left feeling heard that it was not a, something that people shamed me about or were embarrassed that I was there at all. Right. Um, and, and I think that's where we become our worst enemies, whether it's, it's ourselves like hiding, like I said, or as a community or a family hiding, you know, like the, the sense that we're the person that people don't want to see or something like that. And I really believe that very, um, very few people had a problem with me. And I don't mean to say that, that it was all in my head. Um, that's because like that connects up to the idea of like, we have to understand problems within a context and lived in a context where there was real question about whether I would check enough boxes for girls, right? Like that was like a real deal. That's how things were communicated to, and I don't know how they are now, but certainly in the nineties, that was a big deal. And so I think that part is real, but the people that mattered in my life were supportive and patient. And that, that's what, I, maybe that's what I would say. I can't fix this now, but I promise you the people in your life are supportive and patient. I like your answer. It's a little different than I thought you'd give. I am, because my inclination would be to point to your future and give you hope. And some of that's appropriate, but it sounds like you were aware that the future and possible hope in the future isn't what you needed right then. You needed to do the things that your parents and your bishop and stake president did and ultimately Autumn did, just loved you and helped you feel love and acceptance. Love is a powerful motivator. Yeah. Um, well, and I think like if, for someone like me. And a powerful healer. Yeah, for sure. And I think for someone like me, like if I had to articulate my core fear, <laughs> like, like if, I don't know that everyone has a core fear, but one of my biggest ones is just, Failure, but failure that's due to me because I completely screwed up. And I think 
more than any other time in my life, that's what I felt sitting in the back of that car was that it was a hundred percent due to me. And that, I think that's why I needed that support and love that even, even if that were true, I don't think it, I like, I don't believe it is, but even if it were true, there were people that still cared enough to not be scared off by me. And I think a lot of people in pain just need to know that, right? Like that's a, that's a key thing. Anything else that comes to your mind you'd like to share and share with our listeners? You do have a professional um, s- clinical service. If I'm using the right language. Yeah, yeah. Practice. Practice. We share with our listeners your website if you want to. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, I'll put it. It's kind of a weird thing. So I'll give it to you. So and we'll put it in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, you can put it in the show notes. It's not something that's easy. You'll remember. Yeah. Okay. Um, I haven't invested in like a cool name. <laughs> so I need I probably should do that. But uh a couple of I mean, I think professionally, like my biggest advice would be um that we get ourselves in trouble when we get very narrow ways of we get into habits and practices of regulating our emotions that do not serve our own purposes. What I mean by that is, uh, you take scrupulosity is actually a good way to explain this at the core. If you're not familiar, any of the listeners aren't familiar with scrupulosity. It's when you feel like, uh, you get obsessions that you're, in, in like an LDS context, you're unworthy, you're going to be damned. Um, and obsessions are intrusive thoughts that you just simply can't get rid of. And then what happens is there's often, ser- I call it serial confession, but it's just regular repeated confession to say a bishop or something like that. What I would say is that the heart of that is a pain, right? It's that pain. And to regulate that pain Come is the confession, right? So you confess and you, and that gives you a brief hit. Makes you feel better for a little while. It's like washing your hands. Yeah, exactly. Worrying is the same way in my life. Seeking reassurance from other people is the same way in my life. You could imagine people who drink, people who uh, get angry all the time as a way of regulating their emotions. I mean, there's so many ways that, that it manifests. And we really get ourselves in trouble when it's the one way that we do things. And because then our life becomes narrowly defined as trying to regulate our emotions. Like that's kind of a day in and day out. That's kind of all we do. And so when I, this was not purposeful, like this happened this way, but I think part of the reason I was successful is because, uh, what I, like I ended up getting moving. I, Worked for my uncle. I worked. I went and got my degree and got moving on with my life and living according to my values, even though all that while I mean, forty-four years old, I'm still anxious all the time. So it's it's uh, it's still something that really uh, is difficult to me. But I can still live a life with a lot of vitality by living consistent with my values. And um, so that that's like a big picture thing is like if you feel stuck you probably are, right? Like you probably are stuck in a routine. And I think one of the benefits of something like therapy, but it, it can happen in other contexts. It doesn't necessarily, it's trying to unstuck yourself, right? Get it a little bit more unstuck so that you can live a broader, broader, more fuller existence beyond just dealing with your pain all the time kind of thing. 
um, I think with missions and um, those sorts of things, um, I think I have as much to say right now to people in a position that they can support than I do to the people suffering. And I think that's just because I think this is like my experiences is an instance of that shirt not fitting quite right. And I think one of the challenges we have as a community just fundamentally is what do we do when they don't fit right? And I just kind of keep coming back to that of when you're offering help, are you just trying to make it fit? Or are you giving them the scaffolding and the tools they need to work with whatever they've got. Um, you know, as, as I, I think I said early on, like we often like when we talk about mental health, we caveat a bit, you know, like, but everybody should serve a mission and those sorts of things. And, and I get it, you know, I, like, I understand the importance of duty and I understand those sorts of things. I would just love it if we change the conversation a bit to say, yes, this is your duty. And here are all the ways we're going to support you in fulfilling that duty. Love that. And so that's what I, I think that's how I would really like people to, to adjust or to learn from this, I guess it's maybe the best. Well, listeners, we're kind of at the end of the podcast. This has been a wonderful Sunday podcast. It'll be released. I don't know what day of the week, but we're recording on Sunday and it's just been great to have Scott and Autumn in our home. And I think our joint hope is that the things that you've learned here or felt here, impressions, you'll act on them. I think this is just all better of supporting people, creating Zion. Um, there's so many wonderful principles you taught. You have this gift, Scott, if you have a life story that you've shared um, where your shirt didn't fit. <laughs> um, and that's a good thing. And Autumn saw that in a good way. And it's blessed your life and your family's life and your ability to connect with people. You have this education, you have this clinical experience in this ministry. And I think that's the way we're all, we all have these unique ways of blessing the lives of others because of our own unique stories. And, and that's part of being the wounded hero hero. So I love just your story. I love what you would say to yourself in your car ride home, um, just to help you. and. Um, I sometimes think of this Apollo 13 quote. I've read this a couple of times in the podcast. This could be the worst disaster NASA ever experienced. Or for you, this could be the worst thing that's ever happened to you, that car ride home. Sure. For you, your family, your future family, the woman you thought you'd marry. But Gene Kratz said, with all due respect, sir, I think this is going to be our finest hour. Mm. So it was your a painful period of time, but the things you shared with our our listeners to me is your, is one of your finest moments in your family, including your parents, your bishop, your stake president, Autumn coming into your life, but just then your ability to know not in a theoretical theoret theoretical way, but a practical right. way. I had to move forward. I had to do just there's no owner's manual. There's no pamphlet the bishop gave you. This is what you do. You had to right. do this all yourself. But since you had to do that all yourself, it's a, it just helps so many people. And the principles you share apply to people walking different roads that are just complicated. Right. So um, we'll sign off, even though I could probably keep these guys talking. Can I say one more Scott thing? Scott has a thought, and I'll let <laughs> Scott give the closing thought. But Autumn, I'm so glad you were here. 
and just um, shared some thoughts too. In fact, Autumn's going to grab. So both let Autumn and Scott share final thoughts. I do have one closing thought. I don't know if it's the same thing Scott is thinking. Um, I'll just share a few weeks ago as we were getting our second son ready to leave on his mission. um, Our our first son had kind of a rough landing in Ghana and he's been out for two months and is, is doing really well. Um, but it was hard there. And so our son Thomas said to me, mom, what if dad's whole mission experience happened to make him the perfect person to help Carter and me through our mission? And I said, I'm not sure I believe it had to happen that way. I'm not sure I believe that, you know, God made it happen that way. I think it was more a result of life and who Scott is. But I do 100% believe that Jesus Christ and our heavenly parents can consecrate any pain we feel for our good and for the good of those around us. Yeah, she said what I was going to say. I mean, more or less the idea of I I'm also am not somebody that necessarily believes that God makes tragedy happen or violates our expectations because there's just so many cogs in this wheel. I mean, I don't necessarily think of him as like a puppeteer making all this happen. But I think I've come to understand the or believe, um, at least at my good moments, believe in one of the biggest or one of the benefits of the grace of the atonement of the savior's atonement for us is the possibility to sanctify our efforts even as incomplete fallen people and that um i don't even remember what part of the old testament now i i'm so terrible at this kind of stuff but (laughs) we were having a family scripture study and there was something about compensatory blessings that was mentioned in come follow me. And my 14 year old just said, well, I'm a compensatory blessing. And Autumn said, well, what do you mean? And he just said, well, if dad hadn't come home, he probably would have met you. Cause she, she graduated anyway. It doesn't, the timing is it. I, I God could have brought us together, but it would have been much harder than it would if I had been in the Netherlands. And he just said, I'm here. Cause dad didn't, service mission and uh uh, like it's thoughtful kid yeah 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 he is a thoughtful kid and it's just sort of like it really did feel like there are those moments where i think that's part of the reason the healings come like it feels like the savior healing me in that process of when i get to hold you know give him a hug Part of that came about because of this, you know, and this whole story. And I don't know what it will look like for any of the other listeners, whatever their challenges are. Um, but I do believe there's possibilities and there's a lot of hope. And there's going to be a lot of pain too. But fortunately, I think the Savior's up to the task. So. Love that. Well, Scott Baldwin, Austin, Autumn Baldwin, 
Um, any Baldwin family that are listening, this is just a beautiful story. And so we'll sign off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.